think if we turned language learning on its head and looked at it from a different perspective about how you are teaching your children, you know, in a way to build their resilience and determination and persistence in doing something that's actually really difficult, I think that'd be a great thing, but also teaching them about connecting with other people, other cultures in a deeper, a deeper way that you don't always get to. Welcome, welcome to The Fluent Show, a podcast about learning languages and reaching your potential. My name is Kirsten K. Wolf from fluentlanguage.co.uk and here on The Fluent Show we talk about languages, communication, curiosity and enriching our lives through the challenge of learning something new. Hello, hello, welcome, welcome. It's lovely to have you here with me in an interview episode that is all about... A particular language learner from down under. It is the wonderful Penny Wilson. Now, if you haven't heard of Penny Wilson before, Penny is an Australian absolute language obsessed language learner with a really interesting profile of languages that she has learned. Definitely to me, because Penny is an experienced language learner of Japanese, Chinese and Vietnamese. So very different to my very European-centric profile. And in the interview, I talked to her about learning these languages and moving all around the world. And also the Australian, particular Australian language landscape, including Australian indigenous languages and how Penny has experienced those. Penny is the co-host of one of um, my favorite sister podcasts, language learning podcasts, Language Chats. So we also talk about her podcasting story and she is soon leading a brand new language trip because Penny and her podcast co-host Beck are incredibly active in organizing language learning events. So if you are Australian, definitely, definitely check out Penny online as well. And if you're not Australian, you are still really going to enjoy this episode. Now, before I go, I've got a few announcements, of course, a bit of housekeeping. The first, of course, is a shout out to our sponsor, Closemaster. Closemaster is a language learning app built around a really, a really effective language learning exercise called the Close Exercise. That's C-L-O-Z-E, Z-E for my American friends. And in this exercise, you see a language sentence in your target language and there's a gap. And your job is filling in the gap. Now, this used to be done on paper in language lessons. And in fact, my Welsh teacher still makes us do it in our lessons. But, you know, the world has moved on and there's an app for that now. And that app is Closemaster. You can get it on Android, iOS and on the web. You can try it out for free. And you can go to closemaster.com slash fluent show to watch a little video of me showing you what my own setup is like and just giving you an introduction to the app. I have had a lot of really great feedback from language learners who found Closemaster through this show. So I'm super excited and it just makes me happy to be able to bring you something that is actually useful for you. If you have tried out Closemaster as a result of listening to it on the Fluent Show, hearing it on the Fluent Show, then please let me know and I will be absolutely delighted to hear your stories and maybe even mention them on the show. I also want to give a quick reminder that this week is the last week that you can apply for the Fluent Language Mastermind. Here's what it's all about. If you want to achieve higher levels in language learning that are not just for now, but are for life. 
if you are ready to go from sporadic learning bursts to relaxed and reliable success, yes, sounds good. If it's your time to discover how to learn best and how you learn best, not how to best follow other people's instructions, then I want to invite you to the Fluent Language Mastermind. It's a growth program. It is six months plus long. You can join a bit earlier. It's six months long with support and answers to all your questions, even the ones that you don't know you need to ask. And we are going to go from cultural skills and mindset to confidence and fluency, accent, just everything. The Mastermind is set to start in 2022. And for early birds, there's instant access to the core curriculum. You can apply for it now if you go to fluentlanguage.co.uk slash mastermind. So you're going to find that. You're going to find Clothes Master. You're going to find a link to Penny in the show notes. That's my cat. She's been sick. <laughs> I haven't thrown her out. So I'm just going to let her stick in here. <laughs> Let's go on into the episode. This is my interview with Penny Wilson. Welcome to Language Chats, the podcast Talk. from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> hey, Penny. Hi, Kirsten. Hey, you've got a different podcasting buddy today. I know. It's all a little bit strange and out of whack, but good. <laughs> <laughs> So I've already introduced you to the audience as my wonderful guest, Penny Wilson, who is a language lover from Australia, but actually very, very well traveled. And so I'm going to, I'm going to go straight into so many questions I have for you. First of all, Penny, whereabouts are you from and how did you grow up with languages? So I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and I live in Geelong now, which is about an hour outside of Melbourne. And really languages were in my life from school age. So I grew up in a monolingual English home, but I really loved languages at school. And it probably was about when I was 12, 13 in high school, when I had the chance to learn Japanese as an after school activity. And I said, yep, I'd like to do that, please. And I think that's when it really hit me that I actually liked this language thing and yeah, that I could keep doing it. And so I did. <laughs> Through high school and into uni. But what sort of kid picks Japanese as an after-school activity? What sort of environment offers you such a great opportunity? Well, yeah, I know. I was thinking about this the other day because I thought, I wonder if, you know, if I had my time again, would I be that same kid? And I think I would be because there was obviously something about it that drew me in. And I think because back then it was the 90s, and in Australia and probably other parts of the world too, there was a big push to have Japanese as one of the language options for kids in school. And I thought, yeah, this is really awesome. This is, you know, a completely different script, completely different, you know, culture and part of the world. I'd been learning a little bit of French before then. And I thought, yeah, this, this really appeals because it's so different and tricky. <laughs> And, and I think I wanted to try something tricky. And how did all the other kids react? Yeah, there was quite a few kids that were, were into it. And, oh. you know, in the end, the school brought on Japanese as a, as a subject. Yeah. And I did it right through to year 12. So through the whole, you know, my whole time at high school. And then I kept going into uni as well. And 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I um, have lost a little bit over the last couple of decades, but definitely that time was um, really awesome. I got to go to Japan too when I was um, 15. I went on a Girl Scout um, camp. So for two weeks I went to Japan and I had a homestay and I went on camp and I think as a teenager, just with a little bit of language under my belt, it was, you know, a fantastic experience to have that in-country, you know, chance to to listen and to put into practice some of the things I'd learnt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The thing that might come out of this, or that I would assume would come out of starting a language so early, having such a positive experience with it and such an early opportunity to engage with the language, and it makes me feel like you would kind of not deal with a lot of the fear around language learning that kind of comes to us as adults. Do you, have, do you have a memory of any thoughts about whether you could do this, whether this is too difficult for you? Did people tell you this is too difficult? How, how did you feel around that, really? My first memories of feeling like it was too difficult actually came a bit later when I was at uni. So, you know, I was already 18, 19 years old. Wow. I think that that period beforehand, I felt like I could do it, no worries. <laughs> but um, yeah, I definitely felt that at uni, it was, you know, it was overwhelming, the amount of characters that we had to know. And yeah, the pressure, I think, of doing it as a university subject, my major. Um, yeah, I think I found it pretty overwhelming. And I probably was having too much fun at uni as well and not enough study, but that's a, that's a story for another time. But um, yeah, that, that's when it hit me. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about Japanese. How did you approach learning it or how did really, you probably didn't come and set your own plan out aged sort of 12 or whatever, <laughs> but how did people approach teaching you Japanese and what was the most fun bit about it? I think because we did learn the script from the start and I know there are different schools of thought about focusing on oral rather than doing the written and the oral at the same time. But I think if if you are going to learn a language with a different script, just (laughs) get in there and do it from the start. That's my my personal thought. So I'm really glad that we did do that um, at school because that was part of, you know, the uniqueness of the language and the challenge and what appealed to me about, you know, learning to write in a whole different way and having stories and kind of patterns around how the characters and the syllables were formed on your page. And even like a little thing, like I really loved learning to write with a pacer as opposed to a pen or a pencil. And that's something I still do today when I write in Chinese or Japanese on paper, I always use a pacer. Um, And I think some people think I'm a bit funny for doing that, but I just think it's, it just creates a nicer, sharper looking character on the page. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know what a pacer is. You're going to have to help me out. Oh yeah. What is, how do I explain it? It's just one of those, you know, lead pencils where you press the button at the top and then oh, the little okay. bit of pencil comes out the bottom, but it's really sharp and skinny as opposed mm. to like a gray lead pencil. <laughs> like a mechanical pencil. Exactly. That's what it's called. Yes. Oh my God, there's an Australian (laughs) word for it. (laughs) Oh no, it must be. (laughs) I don't know, I've never heard that before. I thought this this was sort of a, I don't know, a special like 
tool, um, electronic this, tool. Yeah, like <laughs> just like super special fancy nope. brush that you need for calligraphy. Do you know what? This is almost, isn't this the symbol of how, in my head at least, maybe having grown up European and, you know, grew up near France, so I'm not like scared of French or whatever, but I think we we mystify the East Asian languages sometimes and build this sort of whole mythology around them and make them make them a lot more exotic than they actually are <laughs> and i feel yeah. like this is sort of the same as like oh what's a pacer it must be this it must be this exclusive fancy fancy exotic tool <laughs> and like, no it's a mechanical pencil okay <laughs> yeah just run of the mill yep <laughs> yeah and you never really fell for that one did you or, yeah no you never really fell for that one because after learning japanese you also then went and did chinese and vietnamese and vietnamese yeah. i did for about I don't know, 20 minutes reading a book. And I was like, huh? all I can say is chow on. And already I'm like freaking out that I might be getting every single thing of it wrong because it has about 700 diacritics. Yep. That, and it, it was, it was intimidating. And that intimidation didn't really hit you as much. So tell me about learning Chinese and Vietnamese and your just incredible fearlessness around them. I think I came to Vietnamese at the right time in my life. I was 17, 18, and my parents had actually moved to Saigon. And I went across for my gap year between high school and university. And I thought, what am I going to do with my time? I know, I'll learn Vietnamese. So I enrolled at the the university and you know, went to university each day and, and learned Vietnamese. And back then, that was the late 90s. And, you know, Vietnam was a very different country back then. There was, you know, not heaps of um, foreigners living there and things were still really developing. And so it was a really, I guess, a unique time to be learning Vietnamese in Saigon, in country. And I think having access to the teachers every day and plus being there, um, really meant I kind of I got that really good kind of foundation with the tones and the pronunciation pretty early on and it took me months and months and months before anyone could understand what I was saying and that was really demoralizing but I kept at it and yeah eventually people could understand me and we could have conversations which I think was a huge a huge thrill when that finally did happen um and I guess my experience with Chinese was similar in a way. I didn't start learning Chinese until I was in my early 30s. And I was working for a wine company at the time in an Asian marketing role. And my boss, she had fantastic Mandarin. And I was like, oh, really? I'd love to be able to speak like her one day. And I applied for like a government scholarship and like, got to go and live in China, in Nanjing, um, near Shanghai for a semester, which I extended to a year. And yeah, got to learn Chinese in China, which was really awesome. But I did land as a complete beginner. And that was pretty overwhelming with <laughs> having to, um, yeah, set up, kind of set up home and, and work out what was what in a whole new country with a whole new language was a, you know, an awesome learning experience, but also very overwhelming and very, very challenging at times. But I was thinking about this the other day and thinking about all the, I guess, the soft skills, if you, if you like that word, that 
language learning brings us. And I thought that experience that I had in China that first month or so, I guess, you know, the resilience and the adaptability and the persistence that you can learn and are exposed to when you're kind of thrown into that situation are kind of unmatched by other experiences. Mm -hmm. And I also thought that it was probably the first time that I'd had that experience as an English, native English speaker, going to a country where I wasn't going to be saved by English. Does that make sense? Like, there was no one speaking to me in English. Everyone spoke to me in Chinese and that was the the language that you had to speak. There was no fallback, no English fallback. <laughs> and I don't think I'd had that before. I think I'd always had the fallback option because, because English is so widely spoken. I think that's a really good observation and something that is very often glossed over when people say I, when people talk about moving to a country in order, you know, like, because that is how you would learn the language, the fact that in reality, you as an English speaker are so, are part of such a dominant linguistic group that pretty much anywhere in the world, not, well, pretty much anywhere in the world that you are most likely to want to go to and learn that language of, given, given the popular choices of English native speakers, uh, people are going to speak English to you and you will you will not be in the precarious situation that you dream of slash envisage. So it's it's unusual. It is unusual. But Penny, you mentioned so many things um, and I, I kept thinking, like, hang on, hang on, tell me more about this bit. So allow me to go back a little bit. You mentioned sort of very, very lightly there, your parents moved to Saigon. Yeah, they how, did. How what? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, yeah, it was a great opportunity, and then and Dad ended up working, you know, in other places around the world. He worked in Singapore and Istanbul as well before coming back to Melbourne. And I think you know they'd always wanted to work overseas and had always been very big into travel and international experiences. And when the opportunity came, it was. It was something that was, you know, a no-brainer for the family, which was great. You know, looking back, you know, what a what a great experience to have. Yeah, and but how how brave? But were they like diplomats or something? Oh, working for like an international company. So mm-hmm. that time in in Vietnam, there were so many international companies going there and opening up, and there was it was and still is seen as you know a great developing massive economy and full of opportunities which is still the case um and yeah drew heaps of of international workers that makes sense then and that sort of that explains a little bit more about what set you up for moving to china yourself having experienced such a culture shock for yourself and taken so many positives out of it so your parents took the the whole family was it just you and your parents? Do you have siblings? Yeah, my wow. brother as well, my younger brother, and he went to school in Saigon, into an international mm-hmm. school. Um, so he had a had different experience to me. He mm-hmm. was fifteen, and yeah, I think it really strengthened our relationship as well as siblings because we had to rely on each other so much because we didn't really have any other friends at first. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, as a, as a family dynamic, that was, that was really cool. Yes. Yes. That's a, what a lucky stroke. I love it. I love it. Now you also mentioned 
you didn't start learning Chinese until your early 30s. And then mm -hmm. at that time, you moved there. Yes, That's, and wow. I moved there <laughs> as a beginner, <laughs> which, which in hindsight, you know, I don't know, it might have been a bit crazy to go with, I'd done a couple of night classes and literally when I got off the plane, I'm like, oh my goodness, these night classes, do not cut it because I have no clue. <laughs> I have no clue what's going around around me and I, I didn't have any clue for the first month. It was, it was, pretty, it was pretty crazy. Um, but, you know, we were very lucky that there were other people from Australia there and some of my friends had fantastic Chinese and we lent on each other and we made lots of local friends who helped us in so many ways that, you know, as someone who, you know, navigates daily life here in Australia without any problems, you know, just getting a mobile phone contract or trying to find somewhere to buy you know, cow milk, you know, just these things that you just take for granted that you needed help with. And in your early 30s, you might have been, I don't know, married or had children, etc. And you're, usually people would have, you know, a career and a whole life that they would feel would get interrupted. Yes. And that was a big consideration. I think it was a huge turning point in my life. I'd left a very comfortable kind of well-paid government job to go and work for this wine company and yeah just the, the company I worked for just wasn't what I wanted and I was really disappointed and and just thought I'd made the wrong decision I'd left the comfortable job by following my passions but then it led me somewhere I didn't want to go and so I was at this crossroads and I was like I knew I wanted to get back to studying Asia studying languages, working with language in some way, because ultimately that, that had what I, that's what I'd done as my university degree. I did a Asian languages degree and, but then I never ended up using it in my work. <laughs> um, and so I really wanted to get back to that. I thought, look, it's now or never. I was, um, single or pretty much single and <laughs> didn't have kids then and I didn't have a mortgage and I quit my job and yeah it all kind of fell into place. This is interesting to me because in my early 30s is when I um, stopped working at universities and just um, and also went through a period of stress disappointment and like real struggles and 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 um, with my mental health as well, which I'm going to just, I don't mind saying, but I think it's it's good to mention as well. And for me, it was, it was sort of about, oh, hang on, if this work isn't my whole identity, what, what is it? Like, what, who am I? What? <laughs> you know, and I came back to language almost as my home base. And it became this sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of become this guiding principle at least through my 30s it's certainly kind of been with me and it's been this like thing that I can lean on and say no this is this is part of who I am what I do what define not what defines me but what you know what what guides me in a way and mm. it's yep. interesting listening to you talking about you know you had this situation where you thought what on earth like nothing's working what am I going to do and your answer it sounds like your answer is basically Oh, I know. I'm going to go to China for a year. But in the context of this is what I've always loved, this is what's always been inside of me, that kind of makes sense. 
and I trusted myself that it was all going to work out in the end. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Well, I could walk away with a new a new skill. That would be that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, and my bank account would probably be a lot lighter. But um, other than that, that you know, what else could happen? And so I thought, you have to you have to try. You have to leap. You have to trust your gut and you know know that things will work out Mm. and on reflection what did you what would you say you learned about yourself as part of the as result of the experience it was really a life-changing year or almost a year and I think in many ways because it was so challenging at the start particularly but being able to push through that and just have some amazing experiences using using Chinese and feeling like I was making progress and achieving what I wanted to do. And also the other awesome thing about it was that I'd gone back to student life as well. And that was a really amazing kind of interlude in my life being, you know, 32, 33 and getting the chance to go back to uni and to study and to spend my afternoons in a cafe writing out character after character if that's so what I wanted and which I did (laughs) and it felt like a real privilege um, to be able to do that but the other thing that really changed was that I guess my priorities just completely changed after that that experience that year I think not that I was a materialistic person or anything before then but you know I I like to buy nice clothes and you know go out for dinner and spend money on things that I considered that were important to me but I really felt after that trip that those things kind of got turned on their head a bit I just didn't see the value in them as much as I had done and um, and just realized that you could live in a very different way and still be quite content and happy and satisfied and yeah the um, one of the the things that really changed was the accommodation that I had while I was there the first semester I lived in a in a room on campus and it was pretty pretty spartan pretty freezing um and then the second semester I moved into an apartment with a Chinese girl who was doing her master's at the uni and we had a pretty a pretty a pretty average drafty little apartment on the sixth floor walked up all those stairs every day but these were the things that kind of made my experience and made my year and and really did change me I think definitely for the better Mm -hmm. I like that as a sort of complete shift in perspective and and taking it forward so after you came back to Australia how would you say your experience stayed with you I was really determined not to let all that hard work that I'd done learning Chinese go so my first thing that I really wanted to do was obviously to continue to continue learning um and then I was really keen to get a job that used my new (laughs) my new language skills um which I was very lucky to get and so it meant that I kept that connection with China and other um Chinese speaking parts of Asia with with my job and 
with um, kind of volunteer work that I was doing in Melbourne as well at the time, working with the you know the Australian China Youth Professionals Initiative, who were doing events and working to I guess highlight the relationship and highlight language learning opportunities and yeah a whole bunch of different things and it was just I really just wanted to stay as connected as I could and it was yeah it was a huge part of my life for a couple of years was the the China the China gang. (laughs) Mm. What did you do after you came back? In terms of language learning? In terms of what job did you take did you yeah did you continue going to classes? I went to study at the Confucius Institute at the University of Melbourne, oh, so that okay. was um, in-person classes just once a week and it probably didn't feel quite enough, but it was it was good for, for what I wanted at the time. And I got a job representing a tourism board, so tourism destination, into Northeast Asia, so... China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, which was oh, just perfect, perfect for yeah. me. <laughs> so I got to do some trips and I got to meet so many, so many travel agents from that part of the world who came to Australia and media and, and all kinds of things. It was just, it was the perfect role. And, <laughs> you know, how I was saying before, you know, you've got to trust yourself that things will work out. And it really, it really did. It really did work out really well. So Mm. <laughs> well, I'm going to fast forward a little bit to at some point, I think you, well, you, I don't know if you got married, but you certainly had some kids and you're sort of living a fairly, <laughs> fairly traditional, I would say, family life model at this point, right? Yep. Yes. Yep, you're yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so how is your kind of China experience, your language experience showing up in your life these days? Very much in a different way. Mm. So you're right, I did get married in at the end of 2015 and we've got two little girls now, aged four and two. And so life's, life is really different. Language is a huge part of my life still, but in a, in a very different way. When my first daughter was one, I kind of just that first year, it was all such a blur. I don't think I did much really, just like try and get through day by day. But um, after she turned one, I thought, you know, this is this is it. I'm going to get back into Chinese. And I um, signed up for a bunch of italki classes and I signed up to do my HSK4 exam, which is like a proficiency exam, probably in that kind of B1 to B2 kind of level. And so that was my goal for that year and that all worked out really well and I did the exam and then I'm like, okay, <laughs> now I'm going to get back into Vietnamese. And so <laughs> I did that too and I thought the best way for me to combine two of my passions in life, language learning and travel, would be to start running trips for myself initially, for my family, um, going overseas with the primary purpose of learning a language. And so my husband and I and and my daughter, we only had one at that time, um, we went to Vietnam and we learnt Vietnamese and we did the same in Taiwan and we did Chinese in Taiwan. Also went to Shanghai and did Chinese there. And this has turned into something that I've been able to share with other people now. So running trips um, for 
people who have the same passions who want to learn language and travel and have that kind of cultural experience and a really kind of a deep connection that you don't always get when you when you travel on the surface and you don't have those interactions with local people and have the chance to learn the language as well. So that's what I'm really excited about now. And of course, the pandemic hit and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> blew apart a lot of my a lot of my well well thought out ideas. But I'm feeling more positive now as we end towards the end of 2021. That you know the next couple of years are going to be going to be awesome years, and we'll get back out there. Yes, I think so too. And you and I started, you know, communicating more, and we worked, um, kind of collaborated a little bit, and supported each other through organizing different retreats right and for me because yeah. for me it was it's different I guess because I am from Germany and the big motivation for me was always I feel like people don't see what I see when they look at Germany I feel like too many people go to Berlin and then they might go to the Oktoberfest and they think that that is Germany and I want them to see something completely different whereas for you it, it there's there's an extra dimension with families and I know that you've you've organized you've organized these trips and involved kids in them as well how do you how how do the kids react well I think it's I think this is something that I really want to work on over the next few years as well. I think there's a huge demand for for families and kids and parents to have these experiences which are really meaningful and let kids know that there's a whole big wide world out there that is not not your immediate backyard and your schoolyard. There's a whole world out there and they speak different languages and they live in different ways and they eat different food. And the reaction is just hugely positive and I think that will be something that I will, I don't know, I feel, I feel, I, I don't know, leaving, you know, making this a legacy, that's too strong a word, but do you know what I mean? Like I feel like that it's something that that I can bring that will make a difference yeah. to you. You take that legacy work, families, Penny. <laughs> <laughs> You're entitled to it, absolutely. <laughs> We were talking before about the soft skills that mm. language learning brings to our lives. And I don't know if I like the word soft skills, but you know what I mean, like the things that are not seen as kind of technical skills, but the skills that we all need for life, which I think language learning is really undervalued for that. And that's that's going to be my little, I guess, my little project for the next few years as well is trying to shine a light on ways that language learning can enhance your life and the life of your children mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think the education system really understands or really puts forward. And that's a huge generalization because I know there's fantastic educators out there who, you know, do amazing, amazing work. But on the whole, I think parents and, and schools they see language learning as just kind of a a thing you have to do, you know, something that's not that relevant to life especially here in Australia we feel quite remote and isolated from Europe especially why do kids need to learn Italian and French mm -hmm. you know at least there's a greater emphasis on Asian languages now but I think if if we turned language learning on its head and looked at it from a different perspective about how 
you are teaching your children, you know, in a way to build their resilience and determination and persistence in doing something that's actually really difficult. I think that'd be a great thing, but also teaching them about connecting with people, other people, other cultures in a deeper, a deeper way that you don't always get to. Do you feel like your passion has been ignited more when you think about the legacy aspect, the fact that this is something you want to teach your children and you want your children to participate in? I think so. And I, I, I don't want to put, I don't want to force them to do anything, but at the same time, I really would love, love them both to grow up with a love of learning and particularly a love of language learning. And I think it doesn't matter if they, you know, end up being awesome at a particular language or they just love the idea of learning bits and pieces but I think having that in them is you know just has been a huge part of my life and a huge positive part of my life that I just really want that for them as well mm -hmm. and I think they get that already at their young age <laughs> um, but yeah it'll be interesting when we get to travel again and that's when you really see I guess the impact and, and what's going on in their little heads when when they get that kind of I guess it's like the reward of if they can say something and even if it's you know counting to ten in a different language and and they get rewarded in a way from someone who thinks that's amazing, that stays with them. And I think those little little incremental kind of exposures um yeah, really play a huge part in their development of of loving learning. Mm -hmm. I'm all about the reward, Kirsten. In case you haven't <laughs> worked that out, I'm very reward driven. <laughs> it's how you do see the reward as like it's it's actually really it's actually really good because it's um, you know there's a reward at the end of something really hard and really slow, uh, which I think is not always that obvious to to people when learning languages. You know, so yes, you're about the reward, but you, you seem to be able to motivate yourself about it for a long time, which is, which is brilliant. Now, Penny, I've got to, I've got to ask about this, this aspect of Australian life. And I'm curious about this um, and listening to you sort of your experience with languages was certainly always tied to travel, different countries, and actually very different cultural experiences. And when you were growing up in Australia, I don't know to what extent you were you were confronted or exposed to the indigenous, not just languages, but the indigenous world of Australia um, and how that compares to your children now. And I wondered what role that can play mm. in what we can, you know, all those benefits of language learning, but, but right where you are. I think our understanding and, and desire to learn about our Indigenous language and culture in Australia has come so far since I was a child. I think back now and think, did I even learn anything about Aboriginal language and Aboriginal culture at school? Like, it doesn't stand out to me. And I was lucky, though, because I have got two aunties who have both done PhDs in different um, areas to do with Aboriginal language and Aboriginal education and they were, you know, always kind of 
I guess, letting me know the other side of the story. And my auntie's former partner was a, a stolen generation man. And so I got to, you know, learn a lot firsthand about what happened during the stolen generation and his experiences and, and some of those some of the things I heard were, you know, as a teenager, just really, really upsetting and, and really shocking. And it has stayed with me. And I, I think it's been only recently, a few years ago, I did some work with um, some Aboriginal communities in um, the far east of Victoria. And that was an amazing experience. And that really kind of sparked my interest in getting to know more about the First Nations people of Australia and the hundreds of languages that are that are spoken um, and some that have very, very few surviving speakers. And I think that's come at a time when the country as a whole is really interested in, in learning more and becoming more, I guess, even just little things like it, it sounds like a small thing, but a lot of, say, on the news report, the newsreader will say what country they're reporting from. So I don't know how much you and your listeners know about, about Aboriginal Australia, but there are, you know, hundreds of different um, lands within Australia who will have different languages. So, for instance, you know, a newsreader who's reporting from Sydney might say, you know, I'm reporting to you from Gadigal country, which is the, the land that Sydney is on. And this is a really recent thing, like just this year. And I think all these small, small changes, it, you know, is bringing around so much awareness and, and desire amongst people to really get to know the cultures that we have lived amongst the land that we live on that we really haven't haven't done before mm -hmm. and I, I i'm definitely not the only one who feels like that because um yeah i think it's it's a real big big conversation topic at the moment is how can we how can we do more how can we learn more mm -hmm. i like i like that a lot in terms of I can imagine your children growing up and saying, I, you know, like, or having the opportunity to, to say, I am, f you know, I am a native of this country, you know, and not to completely take it over, but to sort of come back to acknowledging and, and rebuilding, um, a connection to what was there before. Colonialism in Australia, that's a thing, isn't it? We yes, need to do more episodes about that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Okay, I've, with, with uh, apologies to all my um, colonial historians in the audience, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that one there because it's just too big. Um, and I do want to ask you about Australia, though, as its own sort of language learning world, because I know that you are fairly active I mean, I know Australia, massive continent and all that, but from what I've seen, you are very, very active in the mission of building a sort of Australian language learning community and to carry the message of, I guess, adult language learning and the value of language learning um, out into Australia, uh, not just on your own. So how did you become involved in that and how did all that start coming together? 
I think this is one of the the greatest stories of the the past few years for me, for sure. So it's a great story, Kirsten. And um, back in 2018, when you and, and Lindsay and Shannon put on the first Women in Language conference, I was watching and um, there was a presenter from Melbourne and I was like, what? <gasps> I have to get in touch with her. And so I sent this woman, Beck, an Instagram DM and said, I'm in Melbourne too and I love languages, you know, can we can we be friends? <laughs> and um, we ended up catching up and we had so much in common and we just realized we both had a love for language learning and we decided that you know, the best thing would be to try and build a community of other language lovers in Australia. So Beck, Howie and I started uh, Language Lovers AU um, as a way to kind of highlight language learning in Australia and bring together language learners from around the country and also Australians who live abroad um, to showcase what everyone's doing in terms of language learning for hobbies and, and for work and for family reasons. And it's just been fantastic. We've we've got a you know really active Facebook group, and we've done some fantastic events um, in person pre-pandemic, and some really fun online events as well. And a couple of years ago, Beck and I started a podcast, um, inspired by yours truly. <laughs> <laughs> and um, oh man, <laughs> um, the, yes, we we thought oh we we don't. She's a, she's a, you know, can I say role model? <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> and Thank you. Yeah, the podcast has just been fantastic as a way to highlight the work that language learners um, are doing all around Australia and, and more broadly. And um, yeah, it's, it's been so fun. It's really cool that so the mission of the podcast for for anybody who isn't hearing it yet, uh, it's called Language Chats, by the way. So they're chatting about languages, and it's Penny and Beck. Um, and I I would highly highly recommend it if you're not a listener yet, even if you're not an Aussie yourself. Um, so the the concept of the podcast really was to to talk about the language learning world in Australia. So what have you learned about the language learning world in Australia so far? That. There's definitely a lot of language learning going on and that's a great thing and that there wasn't really a community for people to hang out with before and that language learners in Australia felt a little bit, I guess, disconnected and isolated from what was happening in North America and in Europe um, and that it's really nice to have, I guess, an Aussie, Aussie space for language lovers and language learners um but you know there's there's huge diversity in in languages being learned and for so many different reasons um heritage language learning is a big thing um in australia you know we're a country full of migrants so there's a lot of people delving into their heritage language um mm -hmm. and language learning for pleasure, of course, and for work and for love. And, um, yeah, it's just, just been really great to, to find a community of people that we can hang out and, and talk language with. <laughs> I was lucky enough to moderate the Languages in Australia panel at last last year's this year's Women in Language conference. And the thing that really stuck out to me was this – 
the thing that you've touched on there, which is the the language, the linguistic landscape of Australia and the kind of not linguistic in terms of you've got your own flavor of English, which of course you do, but also the language learning landscape, the language choices, it's sort of influenced by the region you're in, which I, I guess influenced your life very heavily, sort of China, Japan, you know, East Asian languages being available. Then there's this world of indigenous languages, which are being supported more at this point, maybe not as much as they should be yet, but there is movement there. And then there is also this issue of the heritage languages as being a country of immigrants. I think that makes Australia a very, very unique and it really is its own world. Yeah, I think I think definitely the geographic aspect is really interesting and it is something that makes Australia unique in that sense that, you know, Indonesia is our closest neighbour, so Indonesian is one of our most important languages um, and is taught in schools here. Like you mentioned, Japanese and, and Chinese, they're also really popular as school languages. Um, French, German and Italian are still super, super popular um, and I think they always will be even though, you know, geographically we are not close to that part of the world. And I, I'm so excited about the the support and the growth in kids having access to Indigenous languages through school. And like you said, I think, you know, there's there's a huge, huge scope for that to be increased, but it's it's starting and it's happening. And there's a lot of language revival that is happening around the country as well, which is really exciting. I'm really excited too because next year we will have the chance to hopefully take a group of people to to New South Wales, which is um, the state where Sydney is, and to Wiradjuri country, which is west of Sydney, and learn some Wiradjuri language and learn about Wiradjuri culture. And I think, you know, it's long overdue and I think it's going to be really exciting to have to have that chance to to meet Wiradjuri people and learn learn the language and hear about how the revival and how the teaching of the language is going to the to the kids who will be the the caretakers of that language going forward. I like it. And I like I like the way that you bring the next generation into this and you you know yes we're passing it on as parents but also as society we need to pass this on and we need to create a society and create a community in which language learning is celebrated, indigenous languages and also the heritage languages and the languages of the region, all of it really is celebrated uh, so that people feel like they've got equal access to all these different choices that they can make and that, that do enrich our lives. And that was something that really... I had my eyes open to that when on language chats actually Beck and I interviewed a Wiradjuri man who's a, a teacher of the language and he really brought it home and I think it was something that we hadn't really stopped to think about was the fact that teaching and learning a, a language like Wiradjuri, a, a First Nations language, relies on there being people alive and carrying that language forward it's not like learning French, for instance, where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's people around the world that 
speak and, and speak and learn French. It's it was such a, a different way, and it and it and it made so much sense. And it also really brings home the importance of making sure these languages remain living languages with people who are alive that are speaking them. And I think that's where yeah the the kids and having access to these languages through school makes will will make a huge difference. Mm. Before COVID, <laughs> we really have to talk about before COVID, but um, when you had the opportunity with Language Lovers AU, and that's sort of the community that you and Beck run together, you were doing these extremely cool things that I think a lot of people, like certainly me and Lindsay here in Britain, we were looking at going, oh, look at what they're doing. Is this cool? So you were you were doing museum visits in other languages, right? And little yep. cook-alongs and stuff like that. And I love this. I love the way that you opened this up and certainly what it looked like was like, you don't have to learn this language. You don't have to be good at this language, but we're bringing this into your life where you thought it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Spot on. And we were running two different types of events, the language workshops, which was into the galleries, into the markets, into the gardens where... We worked with a, a teacher, and they were in Italian mostly, but also French, to bring language out into your real life and to have that experience of going somewhere where you would normally go, but going there in Italian, for instance. And it was so much fun. I did one of the Italian for beginner um, workshops, and just just amazing to to be able to learn you know how to describe that painting that you can see in a very simple way like <laughs> there's a tall lady with a red dress or something like that but um to have that experience using the language in real life in an amazing setting was yeah they were really fun events and mm. the language bites events were really awesome too because it was the same concept but around food and we ran those in Vietnamese and in Greek and just learning about the language but with the focus on cuisine and and also a bit of travel as well. So, yeah, so much fun and I'm really hoping that post-pandemic we will be able to get out there again and, and do those events in, in real life because, yeah, they're really, really lots of fun. Mm. Do you have any... Do you have a vision of bringing Indigenous languages into that as well? I would love to, and I've been. <laughs> oh, um, I've always got these like ideas on the go, Kirsten. I'm sure you're the same, and I've got you know notes and ideas scribbled everywhere. But um, oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> there's so many opportunities to bring that to life from an Indigenous language point of view, and yeah, we're we're really lucky that there are language centers and cultural centers that we can we can tap into and from a food point of view as well I'm really excited about doing that so watch this space we've got the lingo mama trip for next year but I'm hoping Mm -hmm. we can do some you know more local short workshops as well which I think will be really really good and valuable Mm. Now, I know we're running a little long on the podcast, but I just have to ask you, how do you organize the language workshop? Do you have to ask the sort of 
property owner? Can we come in and speak Italian in your gallery? Or do you just say, this is a public space, let's go and visit, let's bring a teacher along? How do you go about it? Yeah, so because we have used public spaces and the gallery is free to enter and the groups are kept rather small, like no more than, than 10, um, we're able to able to do them. I think with the gallery, we gave them the heads up that it was happening. But with obviously with the market and with the gardens, we're free to come and go um, as we please. But the teacher that we worked with for the Italian workshops um, was really fantastic in the way she prepared the material because you obviously can't have too much, you can't have too little because it's a short, you know, a set period of time and you have to be able to walk around and, and do it. And also people need to be comfortable to speak in that kind of public environment. But I think because it was a small group and everyone was in the same boat and it was something so different, everyone kind of jumped in there and and just did it and loved it. <laughs> I think that's really amazing. Oh, fantastic. Really, really inspiring. And one day will be stolen um, on this side of the pond. The pond? Yay. Is there we even should. a pond between us? I guess there is if we're going that There's way around. There's a huge pond. Yeah, yeah. There's several <laughs> ponds this side of the earth. See, when I talk to Americans, it's across the pond. What is it with Australians? Now that I, I am in the UK? I don't know. I was going to say across, across the ditch, the land, but that's what we say for ditch. New Zealand. So that's oh. not right. <laughs> no, I don't actually know. Um, Around the world? The other, the other side, side of the world. Of the world. Yeah. On the other Just side of the world. So far wow. away. <laughs> yes, we really are. We really are. Thank you, internet. Woo! <laughs> now, Penny, my, my standard question, you might have heard it before if you've listened to podcasts recently. Um, if there was something that you could change about language learning, either for yourself or for the wider world, what would it be? Great question. And I think it's it's a bit bit of a personal one that probably I'm feeling at the moment and maybe other people are feeling like this as well. But for us as language learners to, oh, it sounds so cliche, but embrace the journey and not be so focused on the outcomes and realize that if we are learning the language for fun, that it is supposed to be fun and to not get too caught up in, I guess, the outcomes and our progress and embrace the fact that we are actually doing something does that make sense? Oh my gosh. Yes. The, embrace the fact that we're actually doing something is so good. I love that. It reminds me of what they say about running, right? Because it's oh, sometimes so you can true. be like, oh, if I can't run fast, I won't run at all. But actually, everyone who runs still laps all the people on the couch. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So that's probably where my mindset is at the moment. But I think it's something good to remind ourselves. Yes. And you mentioned earlier rewards. So it really is like, look for the rewards, forget about the outcomes almost. <laughs> yes. Which sounds crazy, but but it, it can go a long way to helping you with your personal mindset and to actually doing things that exactly. add up to learning a language. Ooh, I like and cheer, a cheer yourself on. Cheer yourself on. That's important too. Cheer yourself. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. <laughs> can you please sort of record a few cheers and uh, positive messages that I can then buy to put on my, to put on my computer, a, on my phone? You need a recorded woohoo. <laughs> I do. I need a recorded. You're doing great. <laughs> please, Penny's affirmations. I want that so bad. 
<laughs> now, Penny, as you know, probably, maybe, uh, here on the podcast, I always sign off by saying goodbye from me. And then if my guests can say goodbye in whatever language they choose. So before that, quick roundup of where people can find you on the internet. Of course, you can also go to Fluent like fluent what is my website fluent dot show <laughs> slash guests slash penny and you'll see all the episodes penny's been on and all of her contact details but penny on social media where can people find you so i am at lingo mama l-o-n-l-i-n-g-o-m-a-m-a on instagram and on facebook and also languagelovers.au where you can find more info about language chats and the community Thank you so much for your time, Penny. Thank you for this really lovely chat. Thank you for having a blanket over your head all the way through it because we're trying to get a good sound. Yay. That's that's <laughs> what I do for you, Kirsten. <laughs> Always. <Yes. laughs> it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Podcasting 101. It's worth it. <laughs> now uh, with all that being said listeners thank you so much for listening to us it is goodbye from me goodbye and goodbye from penny wilson xin chào các bạn bye <laughs> thank you for listening to the fluent show if you enjoyed this episode please support the show by subscribing for new episodes and leaving a rating and review in your podcast app you can visit us at fluentlanguage.co uk anytime don't forget that you can send us your questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or you can find the show on twitter and say hello over there it's at the fluent show and on instagram it's hashtag the fluent show we're always happy to hear from you and we read every message and review see you next episode <laughs>